The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. And welcome to a special live record of Business is Boring. It's very exciting to have a special international guest with us today, a leader in the idea of circularity, especially around the opportunities for business. Ken Webster was with the Alan MacArthur Foundation from before its launch in 2010 through to 2018 as Head of Innovation. In that time, he helped shape and popularise the concept of circularity, literally writing the book on the subject with his The Circular Economy, A Wealth of Flows. Today, Ken is a director of the International Society for Circular Economy and is in New Zealand as a guest of the Sustainable Business Network, Circular Economy and Business from the University of Auckland Business School and SparkLab and the spin-off. So we are very lucky to chat today with one of the pioneers of better business thinking, Please help me welcome Mr. Ken Webster to Nakway. Yeah, great. So take us back to the beginning. How was it that um, of the Al MacArthur Foundation? What were you setting out to do and how did you get that off the ground? I think this is it's often um, quite reasonable to expect there was a plan, you know? But very often these are sort of circumstances that come together. Now, Ella MacArthur had decided that she was at the end of her sailing career and she wanted to do something around resources. You know, you've heard the backstory to that. She was very concerned about use of resources, but she didn't want to do something conventionally in the sustainability and guilt thing. She thought that wasn't what her character reflected and all the rest of it. So unbeknown to me, she was rooting around, who can't say that in New Zealand, can you? <laughs> uh, she was looking around, <laughs> delete that. Yeah, she was looking around for ideas that she thought she could build her foundation on. And uh, she came across um, some work I've been doing for Nuffield Foundation, some diagrams about the, what we call the circular economy now. And the Nuffield people had said, if you want to know about different approaches, Ken's pretty good at synthesizing these things. So her PA got on the phone to me, she found out what, you know, where I lived, and uh, I said, oh, hello, and I, I don't do anything about sailing. I've <laughs> no idea why Ellen MacArthur wants to talk to me, but I'll come down. And so we met, and then uh, that was on kind of Friday the 13th, you know, a uh, good, good aspect there. But we just clicked. You know, it was she wanted to know what I was thinking, because I'd been picking up on stuff like cradle-to-cradle design, performance economy from Walter Stahel, Janine Benyus doing biomimicry, but I seemed to be able to put it together in a way that she, she felt was really sort of helpful to her thinking. So that was the Friday, then she said, will you come down to the Isle of Wight on the Monday? And we're living in a house that hasn't been finished, but don't fall off the stairs. 
And we spent a couple of days talking, literally, and then she said, do you want to be part of the team? So what I brought was, because she's a fantastic learner, what I'd able to do was to synthesize some of the main trends reflected to her. She'd been able to go, yeah, I, I get that. And what she was looking for was something that was positive for policy, and it was positive for business, it was not a guilt trip, uh, you know, we can feel guilty about a lot of things, but she felt that the energy in it was, this is a constructive solution to products, components, and materials. So I joined almost immediately, uh, part-time. There were only four of us, and when I left there were 170, you know, so <laughs> it had grown. But my role always, I know you're probably going to ask me about my role, my role was to be a bit on the edge, uh, as almost like, what do you want to know thing. And I kept out of the politics structures and stuff and said, I'm here to advise. You ask me, I'll try and give you an honest answer. And if you don't like the answer, that's fair enough. That's your foundation. But I'll try and help you. And she liked that. She loves the ability to ask you know, a straight question and get a straight answer. She's very authentic, if you like, in that way. Yeah. No, and because, you know, it's become such an idea in the public, you know, things can feel like they were always going to happen right. But paint us a bit of a picture about what is not very long ago at all, you know, kind of 12 years old, yeah. about what the difficulties were around getting businesses to think about externalities ah, and, and yes. start to approach um, owning their product past just selling something. Yeah, this is, again, circumstances always need to be in the right direction for any idea or any synthesis, I keep emphasizing, we didn't invent it, we just reframed it, if you're into marketing and stuff like that. We positioned it not to use some words, but to use other words. And one of the things we said we weren't going to do was to uh, use words around sustainability to start with, because we wanted to see it not in the CSR departments of businesses, but in their main business department. It's an economic opportunity driven by innovation. That's what Walter Stahl says, and we picked up that very strongly. So we were directing it at companies who at the time, this was 2008, nine, sort of just after that, uh, commodity prices had done a big leap in that time. There'd been the financial crisis. And so firms were thinking, where's our innovation going to come from? What's interesting to us? And with the prices of commodities going up, they were, they were feeling squeezed by the, the, the resource volatility. And they could see circular economy in embryo as something they might be interested in. Also, digital, of course, was picking up speed at the time. And this sort of came together. It almost like digital meets business models meets design. So you're starting at the design end, redesigning products or services. You're um, enabling digital to help you track and um, monitor equipment in action, or if you wanted to rent buildings and chop up the spaces, you use digital to manage the access and all of this sort of thing, and sharing platforms. This seemed to fit in <coughs> quite comfortably. So you had the digital energy, if you like. You had the rising resource prices causing questions in business, and we were orientated strictly towards business and policy, EU policy at the time. So that didn't sound like a hard sell to the businesses we approached. But again, you have to have something that makes the world move. And that was Ellen MacArthur's contacts 
with business because she's very well known as a round-the-world sailor in the UK, a lot more then than now, of course. But she had contracts with people like Renault uh, or, or National Grid or firms like Philips or Unilever. So they knew her and they trusted her because she'd already been on some of their boards as an advisor, for example, or she'd been sponsored by them. So what she said was, how about getting involved? And they said, well, I don't know, it's interesting and we trust you. Um, do you have anything more in depth? Because we didn't, I, you know, it had things that I brought together and there's the existing literature. So um, Ellen had to think about that and she said, perhaps we should talk to a business consultancy. And we were thinking, mm -hmm. um, what's, the, uh, one, what's one of the biggest ones? What's perhaps one of the most difficult ones? Excuse me if you work for one of them. But, oh, well, let's do McKinsey. Because we'd heard, you know, challenging things about them as well as positive things. So Ellen got hold of McKinsey and said, um, you know, we, we've got this thing, circular economy, we, we, we're using that phrase, we recovered that from the China and things like that. What do you think? Uh, do you think you could do something for us? And they said, no. No, <laughs> we can't. We don't think there's anything in it. Mm. Hmm. So Ellen put the phone down and go, well, that's not satisfactory. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to try them again with this. So a few weeks later, we put a few more things together. And McKinsey said the equivalent of, you're very persistent. Uh, <laughs> we've got a guy who's not too busy at the moment. If you'd like to, us to put him on to thinking it through, we'll, we'll do that. But if we, if we agree to do something, it's going to cost you, um, how about a, a million pounds to start with to get something done? And I was thinking a million pounds. <laughs> How's that possible? But Ellen, being the, the woman she is, she, she said, you spend a little time finding out that if there's anything in it and come back to us and don't worry about the million. I was looking at her going, don't worry about the million. Where's that coming from? You know. But fair to, they found that when they looked into it, there was lots of potential in it because they, they just hadn't put, put time into it. And so Ellen went to some of her sponsors and things and said, we, I need a million pounds to, make, to get the report from McKinsey that will give you the, the data and the depth you need on where there is a potential for medium-sized durable goods and, and some things like that. So that was that, well, let's give it a go. Let's, let's speak to McKinsey. And so when you put together the report from them, which was very detailed, it was a great report, you know, no knocking it. When you put that together with our energy about getting ideas out there and the contacts with the businesses, you can see how it multiplies through me, just a backroom boy, putting some ideas together, matches with somebody with real connections and determination and the ability to ask people for money and get it. So that is the way in which it multiplied through. So you had at the right time an opportunity to shape this thing. You had backing with a, a McKinsey. Uh, you know, we can say, look at it, this, they say. Oh. And uh, we've also got the clarity of the, the idea. We were working quite hard to make sure it communicated well. So, you know, it, it wasn't in a way a big plan, you know what I mean? It was, things happened and we responded and then took some initiative. Yeah.
But t- tell me about that clarity, because as you said, there were you know cradle to uh, grave kind of concepts well, and cradle to cradle, cradle yeah. to cradle concepts and all of those things. But that kind of concept of circularity. Um, tell me about refining that and kind of you know writing the book on it and landing it in the culture. Yeah, well, it's not that hard actually. I'll just run it through because <laughs> a lot of people had done a lot of people had done the thinking, but they hadn't necessarily shaped it to be most effective. And the key idea around it is we stop looking at throughput and we start looking at capital maintenance. That was Walter Stahl. He says it's a capital maintenance idea. In other words, keep things in the highest value at all time. Don't degrade natural and social capital uh, as far as you can. Keep products, components, and materials in the highest value at all times, which leads to doing things like keeping them in use. You know, So you've got maintenance, you've got refurbishment, you've got resale. You've got all of these things. And at the very end, you've got recycling. Now, in the common mind, recycling is at the front. Circular economy is recycling. No, not really. Because you've got, what have you got? You've got a bunch of contaminated material, which is low value, which you have to put a lot of energy into dealing with, to whose profit, if you like, to whose, you know, it's a difficult thing to handle. You have to handle it, but it's not led by that. It's about business models, which emphasize Extended product life, goods as services, uh, effective take back and repair systems. All of this Walter Stahl was keen on talking about. And that was backed up by McKinsey who said that's where the profit is. If you can get into some of these business models, it's cool. So anyway, so these capital maintenance and it's the notion that this is a nutrient economy. In other words, any waste should be food for the system. That's that shift in thinking. You don't use the word what waste. No, it's nutrients. If it's done right, so that's waste should be food. And the killer thing, and Stefano mentioned that this morning, is you've got to be using the word design. In other words, it's by it's restorative and regenerative by design. In other words, you start at the design stage. Uh, you know, a great example of that is the Triodos Bank building in the Netherlands. It's designed to be disassembled. It's, it's connected up with screws, hundreds of thousands of screws, and they know what's in it. It's designed to be not only disassembled, but transformed. In other words, the architect wasn't thinking, let's get this thing built and sold. It was, let's get this thing built. We make it flexible. We make it adaptable. We can dismount it after a number of years, and we can transform it. That's my job as an architect is to get into the whole design cycle. And, and that's part of the key to it, in a way, is by design, capital maintenance, create waste is food. Now, that's not too hard, is it? No? And the other thing about it is, it's intuitive for humans. Oh yeah, the world's full of cycles, it's feedback-rich systems. Oh, just look at forests, you know, the forests regenerate themselves because the Energy flows in and the materials cycle. Yeah, you know, waste is food, everything eats everything else. But it's quite profound in a way because business goes, uh, it's not the way we're doing it. <laughs> we, we want to scale, we want to create waste that we don't fully pay for. We don't, don't want to pay the full price of, uh, of materials. We want to shift that cost away. We don't want to hold on to it, we want to sell it because we've got inventory coming in and we want to get revenue coming out. What do you mean we turn it from a product to a service? How does that really work? 
that, you know, there were some examples of it, but it was a bit of a, a brain twister. Ah, and they're kind of new ideas, right? But also very old ideas. Yeah. Like these old. are the ideas of, you know, indigenous culture, Te yeah. Māori ideas, uh, you know, long-term thinking, stewardship as concepts. Yeah. It's kind of like how humans operated for, I don't know, most of history until we got really good at disposing of things. Yeah, and we got really good at disposing of things and we had a linear economy and we know that can't continue. So why don't we take some of the essence of what we had to do before we could get, uh, if you like, linear, but update it. This is the difference. Otherwise, it's somebody saying, do you mean it's like your mother in the 1950s? Uh, you know, she didn't waste a scrap of food, you know, and she got by with two pans and a, and a sharp knife. You know, they sort of... <laughs> no, they we're in a modern world. This circular economy description is saying, how do we stay in a modern world but make sense of these stocks and flows so that we can live well but we can transform problems into solutions, if you like. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. What are some of your favourite examples of, you know, great circularity in action that help you, you know, if you're at a barbecue and you're having to explain it to someone, what are, um, yeah, what are the Well, it would be at a barbecue if you're in the Australia-New Zealand uh, context. I see they reach, you reach for the barbecue at any opportunity. <laughs> yeah. for, for us in England, it's like, I think there's a barbecue in the shed. Um, you know, your grandmother's coming around, should we get it out? Uh, yeah. But yeah, okay, if it's a conversation point... And why is it men want to dominate barbecues? Well, what's that about? Uh, uh, my girlfriend says it's actually because sometimes women are more cautious about whether meat is undercooked or overcooked. Men sort of think, we won't die, you know, get on with it. <laughs> anyway, back to the point about something that's very exciting about, or examples which are good about circularity. Well, let's just start with sharing platforms. There's something in Holland called Peerby. Uh, there are similar things now, I think, most places where you rent stuff from your neighbours. So it's a way of accessing other people's property on, on a rental basis. That's a simple way of doing it. Or, or one of my favourite at the moment is T-Mill. These are uh, T-shirt makers. They do it on demand with organic T-shirt material, which they know the sourcing of. They've arranged the sourcing of it in northern India. And they have tags on it, which if you scan, it means you can send the the old t-shirts back and they'll make them into new ones. So this is really thinking through from the sourcing of the cotton through to only making exactly what is demanded and then providing a way back for the t-shirt so they can be remade. Now that shows to me some thorough supply chain thinking and, it, and it's open to lots of people. If you want your t-shirt done by T-Mail, you can have it. You know, if you want two of them, it's fine. 
They just make what you want. And they even use inks and dyes, which are they're able to get out very readily when they get the t-shirts back. They cost a fraction more, the inking. But you've got a system which you can feel confident about because they've thought it through for you. I'm sort of very proud of them. Uh, I've seen them grow up through the startup stage and so on. But that's just an example that's the hardest thing to do is rethink your business. What are you really in the business of? They're in the business of meeting people's specific needs for t-shirts, but not making assumptions like, we want to stock it in 100 stores, we want to have this volume. It's, we want to meet demand, but in a customized way, you know, mass customization, if you like. So that's, that's fun, I think. And a, a real shift, hey, to go from, I buy something to I use something for a mm. while, or I use this resource for a point in time. Yeah. Well, this, because you want to maintain the value of the product component or material, making it access over ownership makes sense because the responsibility lies with, say, we're the, we're the owners of it, we put it into service, and then we say, this is where it differs from just renting, we say, we're responsible for this, and we will be taking it back and we'll be answering the question, what's next for this product component and material? We're not designing for one life cycle. You know, when if you just rent something, it's brought back and then they just sell it off and it goes into the second-hand system. This is more constructive. It's we can keep things circulating because we're no longer having to say it's not new. Because, you know, say you had a pay-by-use washing machine, it, nobody says in the contract it has to be new. It just has to deliver the service you want and give you a lower cost per wash. So you can get high-quality machines as, a, as, the, as the business, run them over an extended period of time, meet the customer's expectations, and the customer can just ring you up and get maintenance done. That's the, one of the advantages. Because you really want to own a washing machine? Really? You want clean clothes, don't you? Unless you have a fetish about... It has to match my desk, you know, my uh, uh, countertop. It has to be black, you know, darling. It has to be black. So apart from those people, most people think it's, it's just in the cupboard, you know. Uh, we open the doors and put stuff in it and it washes it. So with a lot of white goods, with a lot of uh, tools, we, I don't think we're attached to them. We want them just to work reliably. And, you know, with apps now for everything, it's it making much more sense to just... Right, um, yeah, I'm going to use these apps to move around the place, uh, you know, get your hop ticket or whatever it is. And it's not far from thinking about that. Oh, well, I get my food delivered sometimes, Uber and whatever, all of these things coming along. So why do I want to own a bunch of white goods when I'm, in a, I'm a digital nomad in the heart of Auckland CBD or something like that? I want access to these tools. You know, I want to go on the little electric scooter. I don't. Uh, you can probably guess why. Uh, but, you know, I want just access to the electric scooter. You know, nobody's worried about, oh, I don't own it. Oh, come on, you know. So we're shifting the mindset, I think, to access over ownership with responsibility. Clear. It's their scooter. They've got to deal with it. I get access, but it's not my sitting in my shed. You know, that's the biggest problem is sheddism. Yeah. Things end up in the shed yeah. and never, you know, we used it twice, you know, that sort of thing. And you, you mentioned there, Ken, around that idea of shifting the mindset. And that, you know, it's the hardest thing to do in any kind of um, 
dealing with consumers, marketing, changing, um, t- changing minds, establishing new ways of doing things. What have you learned along the way is are good tactics or good ways to change mindset? Well, I'll go back to Walter Stahl. I'm on a bit of a kick with him at the moment in his quotes. And he said, survival in business is not mandatory. You know, the world is changing. And if you're not prepared to change your business with it, who cares if you go bust? Because, no, you exist as a business in one context. The world changes, whether it's from climate change, whether it's difficulty accessing spare parts and materials. If you're not ready for that, you're gonna, you might go bust. And personally, I would say, well, that was your fault because you weren't willing to see the context which was changing. So changing mindsets, I think, often happens very, very quickly. People suddenly go, oh, yeah, I get that now. I can't do it right now, but I know what I'm chasing. It's like the T-mill people with the T-shirt. They just wanted to make custom T-shirts to start with, but then they started thinking through the supply chains and the customer relationship and the returns. So it built up over a number of years, and that's what I think is encouraging. You don't say, oh, next week I've got to have a perfectly circular company. There aren't any. They all exist in a context but thinking, how do I relate to my suppliers, my customers, in this more nuanced way? How can I leverage digital to enhance the quality of the service that they're getting? These sorts of questions are quite profound, and not not trying to pretend it's an easy job, particularly since system conditions are not really easy for circular economy. You know, we're still paying, not paying the real price for energy and, and materials, and it's still very long supply chains. You know, we're embedded in a linear economy. And that kind of sharing the story, the people who are on a journey to do better and learn more and change their models and share that with their consumers and people can kind of, you know, vote for the world they want to live in. Is that a really key part of it? Well, let's look at just IKEA. Do you have IKEA in? Almost. Yeah, Almost. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't matter anyway whether you've got it or not. Um, IKEA's saying they want to be a properly circular company by 2030. What is it with this 2030? Everything's 2030, isn't it? But if you look on LinkedIn, you can find graphs, little uh, illustrations that say, our current approach with, say, a sofa is we might get 600 euro revenue. Doing it this way, where we sell it, we get it back, we resell it, recover it. They had 1,200 euros as revenue. They're not doing it because they're being a responsible company, not, not only a responsible company, they are being a responsible company, but they can see revenue in it. They can see doing business differently is good for them and it helps with the brand and it helps with how people feel about uh, what they've got. Uh, so I think that's important that some big firms like that are looking for the ways in which they can optimize their revenue and minimize the resource use. All, all power to them. It's not perfect. It's still, oh, it's still lots and lots of furniture being sold, but we're not doing the frugal 50s granny thing. And, you know, we're definitely not doing that. Yeah. And a lot of the examples people can go to when they think about circularity can often be really big, like industry things, like mm. people selling tyres wanting to maintain access to the rubber or, or, you know, really big systems things. But what are some ways that smaller businesses or businesses that, you know, might be uh, even family-owned, you know, like, like um, how can they start to incorporate circular thinking and what might be some good examples of that? Just trying to think of one example that would sort of nail it. But the essence is, if you have 
Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, one particular company here that does it. Um, oh, let me just choose a side angle. Why do shops often have stuff for sale near the end of the day, which they know they're going to waste? Right? Because it's a it's a big waste. Now, some shops in uh, Johannesburg have been experimenting with you have to book your loaves. If you want to buy it, you book it at the beginning of the day, and then the only loaves that are available are those which have been pre-ordered. So you don't have this shop window thing full of stuff you're going to throw away, because you're doing it just to make sure people come in. You pre-sell it. And that is a huge input in terms of uh, reducing your, your costs, and um, you don't get the surplus and so on. So it's rethinking your business offer, I think, is, is one of the, the cool things. That t-shirt firm isn't big. I gave that example of that one. But there's even things like Loopfront. This is in Norway. They help put building waste people, you know, demolition, people in touch with people who are building buildings and stuff. It's a network for allocating waste. Now, they're a small company. They're a digital company. But they're doing big things, they're leveraging above their size by creating a market for uh, materials which are at the end of building life. So you're getting lots of these niche people. Now, if you're getting uh, into wondering about a circular economy, say in the agricultural business, uh, you know, a lot of the dominant here, there's some feeling around there's going to be need some infrastructure for this. I'll be playing about this. Say you've got a surplus of apples in Gisborne or something like that. Now, they have to be sold or dealt with straight away, which usually means the big players can do that because they can move it or whatever. This idea of temporary storage for the surplus so that other people can go, well, actually, I could probably use a, a few, few dozen kilos of these. I'll buy into that. This sort of thing started in Germany where biodigestive makers started to sell discrete amounts to local farmers rather than, oh, you've got to take a minimum of 20 tons. It's this hold it and break the bulk idea. So there is a, a gap in the infrastructure that enables that. And I think that's part of where the smaller firms can come in. They can say, well, they can lobby for the infrastructure for a start, but then get creative with the surpluses. This is the idea, okay, the apples, um, there's a firm in the Cornwall, I think, that does cider from almost waste apples, but it sells it online, only online, so it's a small business using redundant apples in small quantities to make this specialist cider. They don't have to be a big business. Digital allows them to get online, and they can look in the corners of orchards, as it were. You know, they don't have to have a big orchard. They can just take some of this surplus. So I think it's often the subtleties about rearranging the, the opportunities to produce, consume, and exchange. And I think that does require some infrastructure. If everything has to be done at large scale, we're, we're, small businesses are not going to survive in that. Can I just give one little warning in a way? <laughs> uh, circular economy could go horribly wrong. Because if there are very few competitors in a particular market, and they all start linking up to, to manage the flows of these materials, products, whatever, you can risk the idea that um, they'll go hmm, we don't have to sell so much anymore. We can sell less, but charge them more. So there is this element, you've got to watch out in a way that circular economy doesn't lead to more concentration of power in particular 
business sectors. Yeah, how, how interesting. And I imagine that every linear industry would have those opportunities for people to come in and connect, basically kind of do arbitrage between, you know, stuff people have and people want. Um, for, you know, people listening and interested about starting on a journey towards incorporating circular principles and thinking, what advice do you give them? My advice to people starting off this journey, I'm assuming they've, they're, they're not just doing a startup. I'm assuming they've got a business or an idea. Yeah, yeah, either, yeah. either of those things. If it's an economic opportunity driven by innovation, you've got to start with what are you doing that's different? You know, it's a fairly obvious business approach. What are you doing that's different? What, are you, what gap are you trying to fill by doing this intelligently, if you like, with a circularity in mind? But if you don't establish the business case, it's got to be led by the business case. You might say, oh, well, it's really good for the climate. That's fine, but somebody's got to buy your stuff. Somebody's got to buy your service without making it, oh, we'll, do, we'll buy that because we feel guilty. You know, that, that, won't, that won't run. So it's, you do your business due diligence, but then think about how we maintain capitals. Are we keeping stock in its highest value? Are we degrading materials? Are we recovering it? What's the pattern for that? Lots of firms are more interested in take back now and incentivizing that. I was talking to a very big firm uh, in Denmark, which is really looking at how do we encourage the consumer to bring our stuff back? What should we offer to incentivize it? Should we just make it a charity thing or discount off new purchases? A lot of businesses are struggling or trying to figure out What's the best way to close the loop? Uh, and I think what I'm very pleased with, with the entrepreneurial spirit, is people are very active because they feel it's a good thing to do. If we can design our business to be circular, it's more satisfying for me, my employees, for the customers. But in an environment where the linear economy still dominates, it's still a question of enthusiasm over, let's just plug and play. It's not a plug and play game. I just want to mention one thing back in the past, but nobody expected things to be laid on for the original Industrial Revolution. It was, you've got some limestone, I've got some iron ore, he's got some coal, should we try and um, you know, figure out something? And there's a canal there. You know, some people can expect, oh, I want to know how to do it perfectly before I do anything. Now, the thing is, like the T-mill people, get involved, fix one side of your business, about, say, using quality cotton, organic cotton and then f work on the take back and then work on the customization thing. So it's a journey driven by an enthusiasm for doing it better. You know, so business isn't quite so boring, it's got more purpose yeah. in it. And as someone that's been part of this, you know, big wave to this new idea becoming so, you know, um, such a part of modern business thinking, I mean, are you um, encouraged? Do you see we're just at the start of the wave? Uh, you know, how does it feel personally to have been, been part of it and, and, and how do you feel about the future? Well, that's a difficult one really because so much of it was about being in the right place at the right time with the right combination of people. And this is always the case, you know, it's very hard to plan your uh, <laughs> adventure from end to end. Some things happen, some don't. What I'm most pleased about is it's become a heuristic, a general idea about well, we can close the loop, we can maintain products, components and materials, we can make a business out of that if we're lucky. We need enabling conditions, we need 
governments to set the rules about tax and spend and whatever to encourage it. But one of the most encouraging things is that it is a general idea that people are going, yeah, if I can find a way to make that work, what's not to like, as they say in America? It's, it's fine. So it's become a handy tool or an umbrella for progressing ideas. Because one of the problems always was with sustainability is it's so endless, so nebulous very often. But when people come to circular economy, oh, it's these sort of principles, it's doing this, it's doing that, mix and match and they feel a lot more relaxed about it. Now there's plenty of things that aren't covered by circular economy, but it's a way of dealing with production, consumption and exchange intelligently. So I'm pleased to have been involved in that, but I'm, I recognize that this is partly to do with chance as well as intention. And I think that's how way most businesses work anyway. If you're trying to parallel with business, you gotta be in the right place with the right thing. And that's not all down to you, that's down to other people and the circumstances. Like why did the, the commodity prices go really sky high after 2009? We didn't realize at the time that it was mostly to do with speculation in commodities. Because <laughs> the stock market had crashed and all the rest of it, they were looking for a home for their, for their dollars. Yeah, the, the speculative back. <laughs> yeah, the speculative back. They were looking and so commodities were the thing. Because it's soon, not soon, but about 2012, it began to, they're all going down. These commodity prices aren't. In other words, it was part of a speculative bubble, and then that got released, if you like, or, or people went elsewhere because the economy was picking up on something else. So one has to be aware that there are things operating which you perhaps don't even know the truth of, but it was useful at the time to get some traction. And as a final thought, what's next for you? After this, Ken? After this, I enjoy, I'm a writer really, I'm a writer and storyteller, that's probably what I am. I'm always thinking of the next book I'm going to, to write. I've done three and a half books in two and a bit years, uh, and um, I'm always looking forward to the next one. I was heavily involved in the Earth for All book, the Club of Rome's book. Uh, I was a major contributor to that, and I'm thinking more and more of the macro thing about how we might work with fee dividends to encourage circularity. You know, so I want to integrate the money cycle and the material cycle in the thinking. So I shall write some more things. Uh, and as long as I'm still enjoying it, and some people want to buy it, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. That's, that's, that's a worthwhile thing. Yeah, love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Uh, thank you to Spark Lab uh, for having us here and to the Circular Economy and Business uh, at University of Auckland uh, for putting this on with the Sustainable Business Network. Uh, it's been such a pleasure and such a thrill to get to chat to you today and spend this time with all of you. So please join me in thanking Ken Webster for being here. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, te Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate.
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.